How are we doing today? Good? Everybody okay? All right. We're going to try that one more time. How are we doing today? Good? Everybody okay? All right. That's what I like to hear. If we haven't met, and I'm pretty sure many of us haven't, my name is Caleb, and I am a, a minister and an author, and I help churches. Um, I just kind of do a little bit of everything. I'm a friend of David's. I'm a friend of Chris's. Uh, I love this church, by the way. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. But if I lived in this area, this is the church that I would attend. So if somebody dragged you here tonight or you came because you thought she was cute and you didn't want to be a stalker, but you thought you'd still go to church and check it out, I'm glad that you're here, and I know that the staff is too, and I hope that you'll keep on coming back, especially next week as we begin a brand new series. And if you've been coming for a while and you're looking for that next jolt of excitement and really wanting to take your relationship with God to another level, I want to encourage you to volunteer somewhere within the church because there's somewhere where we can use you. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself, if that's okay. I'm married to my wife, Amy. She's a counselor in the Los Angeles area. We have a 12-year-old son, Joel, and my 10-year-old daughter, Rachel. And I got to tell you about Joel's birth because it was just unique. I love them equally. But when Joel was born, like, just to let you know, we were so excited because we were told that we couldn't have kids. We went to a fertility clinic. We got pregnant with him on our very first try. And I couldn't wait to get to the hospital. I knew what to expect because I had seen the movies, you know? I knew that a shining light would come down from heaven, and I knew that underscoring epic John Williams music would play. I knew that during that moment, he would grab my finger, and he would say with perfect pronunciation the word, Father. That is not what happened. We got there, and everything was going great until the pain hit my wife. And then she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with, and I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her, and she looked at me with red glowing eyes, and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I'm like, all right, Linda Blair, Emily Rose, whatever your name is, we need an old priest and a young priest. And then they gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. <laughs> and when it was time for my son to come into the world, the doctors come in with what looked like hazmat outfits and a welding mask, um, and, and then they put a plastic mat all over the floor, and, and I'm the only one not covered, and I'm thinking to myself, is something going to explode? Like, I had no idea what was happening. And literally, my expression when my son came into the world, I mean, my expression went from this to, oh. It's like, put him back, he needs to cook some more. He's not done. He came out, and he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. He had gunk on him I had never seen in my life. Um, he didn't make cute cooing baby noises. He made noises like the creature from the Black Lagoon. He came out and his head, I mean, did you know that the human head could be rectangular and triangularish and squarish and trapezoidish all at the same time? Seriously. Okay? And they wrapped him up in this white blanket and they gave him to me. And if you get to know me, you'll find out real quick. I don't have much of a filter. And they said, what do you think? And my first words about my son were, he looks like a turtle. First, guarantee you truth. And my daughter looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And if you had been there, you know, it was messy. Some of you know that. Some of you have seen the videos in middle school, biology class. You know that it's messy, but there's something when you're a parent. And I'm there holding my turtle and my ladybug for the first time. And this love just came out from nowhere. And I knew that there would be, that th these kids could do nothing, nothing 
to get me to love them any less, no matter how messy they were. It didn't matter. You see, and, and believe me, my children have done things to me, okay? I guarantee you, I will die probably about five years earlier because I've had children, okay? I used to be taller. They've gotten me sick, okay? They've taken money from me. They've brought home stomach flu from the school. And before children, I used to look like Zac Efron. And then children happened, and now I look like this. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter how messy they are because I love my kids. And, and here's the thing. I get it when people are messy just like me. I don't understand how God can love people that are messy in other ways, right? People who are messy in ways that I'm not messy. You know, like people who voted for the other candidate. Yeah, no, now we're not making noise. <laughs> people who work in an organization that you would never work for. People who are in a relationship that you would never be in. People who operate from a different moral compass or they have a different system of ethics than you do. Listen, God loves messy people. And let me, let, me, let me throw one at you real quick, okay? How about this? God loves messy people that you don't like and messy people that don't like you. It's not like you and them against God, or them, God and you against them. It, it's, it's God for everyone. And, and we're in the last part of this series called uh, Asking for a Friend. And if you missed any part of the series, I want to encourage you to go online and to the church's website and catch one of the sermons either uh, via video or, or listen to it or check out the podcast. But this is the very last, uh, very last sermon, and we're going to deal with something that is very controversial, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to tell you why we're dealing with it, okay? I'm not here to convince you as much about what I believe as I am here to help you keep influence with people that you love the most. I want to help you keep influence in relationships that mean something to you and in relationships with unchurched people and unbelievers who do not know who Jesus is. I want to help you keep influence so that in the right moment, you can tell them about Jesus or you can have needed conversations. Because hear me out here. If you do not have influence, you do not have a relationship. Period. And if you do not have influence, no matter how correct you are with the words you say to the person listening, your words are meaningless. And I want to help you today. Keep influence with the lives of people that you love, with the lives of people that you need to share Jesus with. And maybe just maybe we'll learn that God loves messy people who are messy in ways that we're not. And to learn this, we're going to really kind of focus in on a principle. And I guarantee you, um, if you really think about this principle, and if you adopt it to your life, and if you think about how this principle can really be unfolded in your life, it will help you keep influence in relationships that matter the most, in relationships where you are needed the most. And it comes from a story about Jesus, something that happened to Jesus. And it's in uh, the fourth book of the New Testament, what we call John. And he was a disciple, or what we might call a, a student of Jesus. And he followed Jesus around for three years, and he saw many of the things that Jesus did and, many, and heard many of the things that Jesus said. And so near the end of his life, he just wrote down a bunch of the things that he heard Jesus say and things that he saw Jesus do and different events that he saw in his life so that we would have a firsthand eyewitness account 
a testimony about Jesus. And within one of these stories, within one of these events that is unique to the book of John, we're going to learn this principle. So, if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, you can turn to John 8, 2. If not, I'm going to read the words to you real quick here. We're just going to go through the middle of verse 6. So it says in John 8, 2, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, and he sat down to teach them. The, te- the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? As I said, we're going to stop here in the middle of verse 6, but this just drives me nuts. Look at this. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So you have Jesus teaching in the temple courts, which would be very similar to the church lobby. You've got his students who are there. You've got ordinary, everyday people like you and me who are there. And then you've also got um, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law. They were the celebrity pastors of the day, the Bible college and seminary professors who had like six doctorates after their name. They had the Old Testament memorized and commentaries on the Old Testament memorized and commentaries of the commentaries on the Old Testament memorized. And obviously they had no life. Probably at the age of 80, they were still living in their parents' basement, playing with their pet tarantula in their spare time. There were some 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day that hated him. Because Jesus came full of conviction and compassion. They came full of fear and legalism. Because if you can get people to be afraid, you can control them. And when Jesus offered them grace and truth and love and priorities, I mean, his following is increasing, their following is decreasing. So they're like, okay, we gotta, we got to get them somehow. So they find this woman who is in the act, don't miss this, in in the act mm, of adultery. And some of you are like, well, how did they like, find her? I don't know. They're creepers, right? And they take her, and they drag her through town. They put her in front of Jesus, and they say, hey, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone her. And they think they have him in a checkmate. Because if Jesus says, don't stone her, he's keeping the law, okay? But he'll lose faith with the people. Because he's not this merciful rabbi that everybody thought, thinks that he is. But if he says, uh, don't stone her, then he breaks the law, but he, lo- but he keeps faith with the people. You see, they, they are using this woman. You know how I know that they're using this woman besides the obvious fact? In Deuteronomy 22, it does say, if you find a man and a woman caught in the act of adultery, you can take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man and a woman. And I'm thinking, where's the dude? Yeah, not in there. And I guess what makes me mad is they don't care about her, her, her pain. They don't care about her story. They don't care about what she went through. They are using her as much as the man who's having an affair with her was using her. Now, Jesus' response is weird. And I know some of you are automatically offended. You're like, Caleb, thou shalt not call what Jesus does weird. No, it is. It's a good weird. It's not bad. And if you don't think what Jesus does is weird, that tells me that you have either read this story like for years or you've been going to church since God was a boy. That's how long. Look at the rest of verse 6. This is what Jesus does. His response. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's an awkward response. Okay? 
imagine reading this for the first time. When was the last time you were in an argument with someone and you said, hold on. I tried it with my wife, Amy, husbands. I do not recommend it. And I try to make it better by saying, well, I'm just trying to act like Jesus. Somebody needs to. Not a good thing to say. Just warning you ahead of time. But Jesus, he always, what we see as weird is really not weird because there's intentionality behind it. Some, you know, some people think that maybe he was writing down verses of scripture or maybe the sins of the people in the crowd, but I found this really, really interesting verse written by a prophet or what we would call a preacher all the way back in the Old Testament. It might tell us what Jesus was doing. I'm going to read it to you. See if you can make the connection. Jeremiah 17, 13. Lord, you're the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the, the stream of living water. And in the original Hebrew, the word dust can also be translated dirt, ground, sand, or mud. And if I were a betting person, I bet that Jesus was writing down the names of the Pharisees in the dirt. They think that this woman is outside of God's grace and love because of her sin, but yet they're further outside. I think Jesus is making the point because they have all this knowledge, they have no love. Hear me out on this, especially if you've been going to church for a while and you know the Bible really well. Hear me out on this, all eyes up here, okay? It doesn't matter what you know if you have no compassion to show. Your knowledge is worthless without mercy and love. What did, what did, what did, Paul, what did Paul say in Colossians 4, 5 through 6? Let your conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt. We make it full of truth and seasoned with grace. Because, listen, if, if you know a lot but you have no compassion, this is not me talking, this is Paul, so take it up with him if you're offended. You're annoying. Paul said that in Corinthians. He said, if, if you have no love, you're like a clanging cymbal in God's ear. Don't be annoying. Stop it. Learn how to love people. But they don't get that. And you can tell, because going back to John 8, verse 7, John tells us that when they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now this is brilliant. Jesus now has them in a checkmate. He knew that they weren't going to throw a stone because they believed back then that human beings were filled with sin but God was not the only sinless being as we could conceive of it in existence. So if the Pharisees picked up a rock and threw it, that'd be lying because everybody knew that they had sin and they didn't want to lie because out of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, God put lying in the top 10. Lying is serious because it breaks the relationship. But Jesus knew that they weren't going to throw a stone as well because if they picked up a rock claiming to be sinless and God is the only sinless being, that's tantamount to claiming that you're God, right? And the very rock that you threw would be used to throw right back at you. Dude, I tell people all the time, you may not believe in Jesus, yet you've got to admit he's got mad skills. You do not want to get in a debate or a philosophical argument with Jesus, and I love this. This is almost comical. Look at verse 9. This is actually, it kind of makes me chuckle. It says, at this, those who heard began going away one at a time. Of course, 
No comeback. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And we're going to stop right here in a second when she says, No one, sir, because this next part of verse 11, this is the whole reason why we went through this passage, embedded in this last part of this verse, there's one long sentence in the original language, is this principle that will help us to love messy people that are messy in ways that we are not. Here's what Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He says, neither do I condemn you. So go and leave your life of sin. Grace and truth. That's what he came in. He came full of grace and truth, conviction and compassion, love and principle. Okay? Actually, it says in John 1, 14 and 17, that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth. And yet, there are many of us, actually all of us, at some point or another in our lives, and we'll be tempted to do it again, and we'll give in again. We, for some reason, really just give in to either this, you know, the truth side or the great side, because we naturally lean more towards the truth or the rules or the principles or we lean more towards the love or the grace. I want to make this statement. And again, you may not like it, may not agree with me. I mean, it's okay if you don't. My wife doesn't agree with 90% of what I say, even though I'm right, and I don't tell her I'm right, but still. <laughs> if, if you take sides between grace and truth, you're saved, see in heaven. But do the rest of us a favor. Don't call yourself a mature Christian, because you're not, no matter how much you know. You're weak. You're lazy. You're acting like a coward. Mature Christians don't take sides. What, if, if we want to be more like Jesus, and Jesus stood for both grace and truth, what should we do? When we choose sides, we are so unchristlike. It's like holding a rubber band by one side. There's no strength. There's no power here. Okay? Well, the slide's already up. How about that? So, there it is right there. We'll get to that in a second. Over here, there, there's, when, you hold a rubber, when you hold this rubber band by one side, it's weak. There's, it's powerless. When you hold a rubber band by the other side and you say, I'm all about the truth, but there's no grace, you're weak. You're powerless. But here, check me out here, okay? Listen, if you say, I'm about the grace and the truth, where's the power? The power lies in the tension of the two. Okay, that's where the power lies. The power lies in the tension of the two, and you feel this tension. You know what this tension is? You see it on the screen right there. It's love. You see, love is the tension of grace and truth. And you feel this tension, and, and you feel it in your relationships, because you're like, okay, this is what the Bible says, but I love my friend. You know, but, but Jesus says this, but my friend keeps on doing this. And Paul said we should live this way, and, and I, I keep on struggling with this. And Jesus said this, my family member is making this direction. And we feel this tension, because tension is powerful. And instead of feeling uncomfortable, we become spiritually lazy and cowardly because we naturally go to our muscle habit, which is either grace where there's no power without truth, or we go to truth without grace. But hear me out. It takes all the faith in the world to stretch over to the grace side if you're all about grace. 
or if you're all about truth. And it takes all the, all the strength in the world. If you are all about grace and your version of God is like a cross between Buddy the Elf and Olaf, it takes all the faith in the world for you to stretch over to the truth side. If you want to be mature and be like Jesus, you've got to live in the tension of grace and truth. And by the way, if you don't like what I'm saying about grace and truth, you might want to find another religion. Because our faith as Christians is filled with tension. And it never fails. There's always somebody who will say, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. Let's do the rubber band test. We believe in one God, okay? But the Trinity, hello. Mm. You ever try to explain the Trinity to someone? That's fun. Okay, God is not a three-leaf clover. He is not a pizza divided into three parts. He is not an egg. God is not ice, water, and steam. He is one, but three. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that the Bible was inspired of God, but he used people to do it. We believe that God is in control, but allows us to have free will. Love God, love people. The death and evil were defeated at the cross, but not yet destroyed. You can be a good preacher and still have hair. Come on. <laughs> there is tension all throughout your faith. So why do we struggle so much with the tension of grace and truth? I'll tell you why. It's because you will always have emotional attachment with other people with grace and truth. It's always about your relationships. And I'm willing to bet you've stayed up all night worrying about a, a person that you love and what they're going through, but you have never stayed up all night worrying about the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. If you have, there are people you can talk to. They're called counselors. So how, what does this look like? Who are the people in your life that you need to live in grace and truth with? Let me tell you about the people in my life, if it's okay. It's my mom and my dad. You see, when I was two years old, they were both professors at the University of Missouri-Columbia, and they got a divorce, and both of them went into same-sex relationships. And so... My mom found a partner named Vera who was a psychologist. They moved to Kansas City. My dad was in several different relationships, never a monogamous one, but mom and Vera were together for 22 years until Vera died of cancer. And, and they were activists. They, they joined the local board of directors for GLAD. They took me with them to bars and clubs and campouts and house parties and pride parades when I was in preschool, elementary age, and middle school. And I remember in elementary school marching this pride parade one time. And at the end of this parade were all these quote-unquote Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, turn or burn. And when people from my mom's parade would go try to talk to them, they would get sprayed with water and urine. Saying, this is what Jesus really thinks of you. And I remember looking at my mom, being a young elementary age kid, and I remember looking at her and said, why are they acting like this? And she said, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. And I saw it proved time and time again with, with families that ignored their young sons who were dying of AIDS back in the 1980s. They didn't want to be around them, and if they were, they didn't talk to them, they didn't touch them, nothing. And so by the time I got to be 16, I hated Christians, couldn't stand them. And I got invited when I was 16 in high school to go to a Bible study led by a high schooler, four high schoolers, and I thought this is going to be perfect. I'm going to be a ninja Christian, pretend to be one, 
and I'm going to learn about their faith. I'm going to dismantle it. It's going to be great. Okay? And, and obviously that turned out real well, right? <laughs> you want to know why it failed? Two reasons. Number one, the people in the group actually treated me well. They treated me like a person, not like a project. The other reason is that, man, Christians are weird. And I can say that because, like, I, I is one now and I'm weird. But, like, I was like, man, Jesus is cool. Because I never wanted to become a Christian because I thought if Christians are this bad, how awful must Jesus be? And then I saw Jesus. Here's somebody with deep theological convictions and very real expectations for how his followers should live and treat other people or what we would call pursuing holiness. But then at the same time, they had very real and authentic relationships with people that were nothing like them and I, like him. And I loved uh, what, what, what Andy Stanley says about Jesus. Andy Stanley says that people who are nothing like Jesus liked him and he liked them back. I was like, Jesus is cool. And I knew that if I was going to become a Christian and follow him, I'd have to decide what the Bible had to say about sexuality and relationships and marriage and so on and so forth. And so I came to two conclusions I still hold today. Here's the first one. Okay? That God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman and any other sexual activity outside of that is not what God intended for sexual intimacy. But I also believe that a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. That if anything, our love should drive us to love people more, not less, to be relentless in our pursuit of people just as God was relentless in pursuing us. That our biblical beliefs must never be a basis for pushing people to the side. You can say, man, how can you believe in both? And it's hard. Do you get confused? All the time. And I confuse other people. And if you confuse other people on this, good. Because then you're like Jesus. He confused people all the time. I'm, I'm, I think that's one of the reasons why the Pharisees couldn't stand him. Because he was gracious when they expected him to be truthful. And he was truthful when they wanted him to be gracious. And they hated him because he liked people who are nothing like him. And they liked him back. And look, if you're going to be criticized for anything, be criticized for what Jesus was. Loving people well no matter what. And then I was at a Christ in Youth conference and decided I wanted to be a pastor, felt God's call. I was like, oh, this is going to be fun telling my parents. But you can imagine how intimidated a same-sex attracted or LGBTQ teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents. I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian who had changed his view on sexuality and wanted to be a pastor to my three activist gay parents. And they kicked me out. And so a lot of the times when I speak to people, they're like, you know, you have no idea what I went through. I came out, my parents rejected me. You don't know what that feels like. Actually, I do. And guess what? The way you feel others have oppressed you never gives you permission to oppress them back. The way others have caused you pain doesn't give you permission to cause them pain or others pain just like that because then you become just like the people that have hurt you. And that's sick and twisted. And so I stayed with friends, and eventually my parents let me back in. I went to um, Bible college in southern, southern Missouri. You know how most family trees branch out? Well, in southern Missouri, it's just one line going straight up, and it never ends. 
I was there four years and escaped Joplin as quickly as I could. First church I ever preached at had six people in it. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group of like 40-year-olds, I think, in Hepler, Kansas. While I was in Bible college, I, I preached at another church for 18 months in the middle of Missouri. We were the largest church per capita in the world. 50 people in the town, 25 of them were in our church. We had half our town, one for Christ. There you go. For 18 months, I preached about grace and truth, and finally I, I convinced my mom to come to church with me. She had never heard me preach. And the next Sunday, she didn't come, but when I showed up, there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, Caleb, we want to talk to you. And they said, Caleb, if, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I thought to myself, well, I, I don't like you. So I said, I quit. Like, right now, I'm done. Panito. Done. They're like, no, we need you to preach. I'm like, oh, you don't want that. Like, you don't want that. If I know this is my last Sunday, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you know that old Bon Jovi song, Blaze of Glory, if you're going to go out in any way? I'm like, trust me, you do not want me to preach. They're like, no, we need a sermon. I'm like, okay, you're going to get one. And so I went up there and took my sermon I had written. I ripped it up. I was on fasting. Who cares about that anyway, right? And I got up there, and I preached a sermon on grace and truth. And I walked out of there, and I'm like, God, if you give me a, part, a chance to be a part of a church, I want to be in a church filled with messy, broken people who are cutting, who have had abortions, who have had five divorces, who are questioning their sexuality, people who think they have it all together, but they're Pharisees and Bible know-it-alls, people who are addicted, people who are on drugs, people who are bankrupt, people who have no friends, people who have too many friends, and people pleasers, and people who are depressed, and people who have disorders and disabilities, because that is what the church is, people. The church is a beautiful mosaic of messy, broken lives that God unites together to glorify himself. The church is not a Pharisee factory. I do not believe for one moment that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross for a place masquerading as a church, but it's really a members-only country club. Where you have to agree with us to be with us. You have to agree with everything. Just to be able to sit in the rows. That, no. That's not the first century church. And so, when I graduated, I moved to California. Got married. Was on staff at a church out there for 11 years. Wish you could meet my wife. She's the opposite of me in every way. She goes to the gym every day. She has a, like a six-pack. I think you can tell I watch a lot of Netflix But she was at the gym today. She's tall, she's tan, she's toned. She's a muy caliente Latina. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would be a cross between Dr. Evil, Gru, and Uncle Fester. I mean, this is... <laughs> this is her eye candy she wakes up to every morning. She's a lucky lady. And after being there for 11 years, we moved to Dallas, Texas for three and a half years because everybody's got to go through purgatory at least once <laughs> before moving back to California in 2013 where we have no money and no water. But I, I went there to go preach at a church, and while I was there, separately of one another, my mom and dad moved down there to be closer to our family. My mom's partner had died of cancer, and she was going through depression. They moved down there. And then they both shocked me when they were like, hey, Caleb, can we start attending your church? And I'm like, you want to come to my church? You know what I believe in? Mm -mm. Like, I believe about marriage. You know, uh. They're like, yeah, we want to go. And I'm like, great. And so they came. 
And as opposed to the other church, people treated them well. People treated them like people, not like projects. We had our weirdos. Don't, don't get me wrong, okay? Every church has their weirdos. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, no, this church doesn't have a weirdo, you might be that weirdo. <laughs> and I'll throw you a bone if you are. Everybody sitting here is somebody else's weirdo. You, we all have somebody in our life, when they see us coming, they're like, ugh. We all have somebody like that. We left in the summer of 2013, two or three weeks before we left, at the ages of 69 and 70, my mom and dad gave their lives to Jesus Christ and trusted him and became Christians or baptized. And I wonder, and I thought to myself, how is that possible? Because they love God, okay? They believe in Jesus. They don't believe everything I do theologically, Okay, they're still same-sex attracted. They are not in same-sex relationships. My mom is currently dying of cancer. My dad has dementia. They go to Bible study when they can in their respective places. How does that all go together? I don't know. God never called me to resolve the tension. He called me to live in it and to trust him. And so I'm already over, so I got to go quick here, Okay. But three principles, three ways you can put this in act in your life, and then one question to ask yourself. First thing is this, okay? How do you live in the tension? Don't allow the fear of some to determine the value of many, okay? Never allow the fear of some people to determine the value of many people. Don't let that happen. You see, because fear is not a bad thing. You need fear in your life. It is a constant companion, like, if, you, if you're walking and hiking and you see a water moccasin or a rattlesnake and you're like, I want to pick it up and I want to put a pink collar on it and a leash and I want to call it Sally and I want to put it in my pocket, you should be afraid. <laughs> right? But when fear starts to lead your life and direct your decisions, you will inevitably end up hurting people because you're always on the reactionary. You naturally fear whatever you don't understand and whatever you, makes you feel powerless. So when you meet a person, a people group, or an idea that makes you feel out of control or powerless or you don't understand, we naturally go into fight or flight. But instead of running from our fear, we need to lean into our faith, okay? And this is why I'm telling you the second principle right here, okay? The second principle is... Um, I want you to think deeper about people, not differently about theology. I'm not asking you to think or change your theology. If you believe that God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman, I believe you should keep that belief. I believe that too. And if you don't believe that, I get it, but you can still be gracious and give people time don't force people back into the same closet that you just came out of. Love people. I want you to think deeper about people. Because nobody's shallow. Everybody that you've seen today, that you'll see tonight, that you'll see tomorrow, everybody is a conglomeration of their hopes and their dreams and their childhood and their upbringing and their opinions and everything else. Nobody is shallow. Everyone has depth. We pretend to be shallow so people will go over us and ignore us, or some of the times we'll pretend 
we'll, we'll act like we're shallow, we'll be treated like we're shallow because people don't want to get to know us. If you want to defeat your fear, and if you really want to have a heart for people no matter what, you get to know people who are not like you. Our differences should drive us to each other, not from them. This leads me to my third point. If you want to live in the tension, embrace the difference between acceptance and agreement or acceptance and approval, or affirmation. I believe that we are commanded, as Jesus followers, we are commanded by God to accept people no matter what. But there's a big difference between acceptance and agreement. Now, our society today wants us to believe, well, if, if you reject this part of me, then you're rejecting all of me. If you disagree with my decision here or this part of me, then you're rejecting all of me. Well, that's dumb. Eventually, people who believe that will be alone. Okay? You have to accept people that you may not agree with their decisions or their perspectives. I do it all the time. I have Raiders fans in my family. <laughs> but at the same time, you are commanded to accept people. When I say accept, I mean you love them no matter what they've done, no matter where they are, no, no matter what you think of them, you are commanded to love them because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, not them, you live at peace with everyone. And, and they're not our enemies, but didn't even Jesus say, talking about the Roman Empire in Matthew 5, 38 through 48, you have heard it was said, hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't write about them on social media. Don't just try to win them over to your point of view. Love them. Love builds influence. And it will give you the opportunities to share Jesus and to talk about holy living during the times that matter the most, during the times when God will give you the cues. Like when somebody tells you, I don't know what to do, I don't know how I got here. And then if you're just still confused, you don't know what to do, and you're stuck in this tension of grace and truth, here's what I want you to do. Ask this question. What am I, what would I be willing to do to keep and build influence with you fill in the blank? Your son, your daughter, your brother or sister, your coworker, your friend, your parents. What would I be willing to do to keep and build influence in the life of someone I love? If you don't know what to do when you're stuck in the tension of grace and truth, you ask yourself that question. Because guess what? I'm not saying that there aren't boundaries. We should never deny Christ. We should never sin. Other than that, I think we should do whatever we can. Other than denying our theology, denying Christ. And you're like, Caleb, I, I think, you know, maybe that's too much. Really? Was Jesus dying on the cross for you and me? And God sending his son? God did whatever it took to keep influence with us and to have the opportunity to have it. How far should we go? I think we all can go a little bit farther, whether it's with loving people or with sharing truth. Here's what I know. God loves messy people. That means that God loves people like you and me and the people that are messy, not like us. Live in the tension of grace and truth so the next time that your friend asks, you are able to have the influence with them to answer in grace and truth. God loves messy people. It means he loves you and me. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this passage.
Thank you, Lord, that you, would, you will help us to be able to repent in the ways that we have most of the time unintentionally rejected people. Help us to repent. Help us to keep on loving people that are difficult for us. Help us, Father, those of us who have been away from church for a while or maybe we've never been to church and today is the first day. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to see that you are not like some of your followers. And that churches like this church is a place where it's okay not to be okay. And we're going to journey together as we follow Jesus. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Appreciate you. Hey, again, thanks for joining us online today. You'll see links in the notes or the comments section to be able to let us know who you are if you're newer around here and to give generously online if you call Whitewater home. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.